What a beautiful morning. Wasn't it nice to not have to scrape or shovel this morning? Hopefully none of you did. Did you come that far away that I talked to some of you in the parking lot or on the step or in the lobby, just how nice it is, how much of a difference it makes. And we're in April, and so spring is truly here, and it's hard to believe we're halfway through the season of Lent. And Easter is only three weeks away. You just heard Stephen a few minutes ago share, we're adding an extra service because we're inviting people, right? And we're praying about who we should invite, and so we need to make more room. And so you're going to help us with this afterward. We have these invitations with the details of the services uh, on the back, and you can pick them up on your way out. But we want you to participate in this. Think and pray about that one person uh, who maybe you're... um, uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's one, maybe it is 10, but, but share with friends, with uh, neighbors, coworkers, who's that person that you think you should invite into a seat here in one of those services uh, Easter weekend. So please do that afterward. Well, we believe it's not just the coming into church that's important, but also what goes out from the church. And so we have this opportunity to share with you a special Easter offering toward the 12 Neighbors Microhome Community Project. So this is what's great about this. There's different levels that you can participate in with your giving. It starts at $40. It's small, but that purchases uh, what they call all the small things that hold it all together. And so there's different price points for tangible items and needs for these homes from 40 all the way up to 40,000 for the complete thing. And so for some, yeah, 40 might be a stretch, but we believe that's a great starting point for our community. Obviously, every dollar matters, but in this case, uh, don't give $39 when 40 gets the thing. Do you know what I mean? So stretch up if possible, uh, because that's what it takes. And, you know, if, if 50, if there's not an increment there, yeah, it's $10 more than the 40, but the next increment's 100, so why don't you just stretch up to 100? Wouldn't that be great? And so there's different things along the way, 100 and 200 and 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000. Notice they're not random. They're for specific things. They're tangible. And the cost of labor is $12,000 for one of these homes. And the homes, some of them are already built. And the goal is 96. Well, they're at like four or five right now. Marcel Lebrun will be with us next week to share a little bit more. Uh, But yeah, the cost is 40,000. So let's not go short of that. Think of it this way. If, If 80 of us were able to sacrifice and give 500, we'd be there. And I know there's more than 80 people that will give. Obviously, you know, there's different, different points for all of us, but I, I think we can do this. And so let's do it. We have this opportunity. There's a need, a tangible one. And so during Easter weekend in the services, there'll be a moment in services for those of us that are giving to come forward. There's going to be buckets at the front here where we can participate in that. Even if you give online today, even if you give uh, in one of the boxes today or, or whatever, it'll just be a tangible way for us to represent our, our care for the city. Have you received your tax return yet? <laughs> have you invested or wasted that yet? Boy, do I have an opportunity for you. So please write 12 neighbors, Canadian or American spelling will be fine, uh, to designate your giving towards this Easter offering. And, and so we believe that all the way from, from 40, all the way to 40,000, there's a point for all of us to participate. It's more important that we participate together. Uh, we, we should do this. We believe that we love our city, so let's show them how much. Father, we thank you so much for this service already and the reminders in worship uh, of what you've already done for us. We know you're here, and um, 
what a great reminder, even something as simple as the sunshine uh, just brought joy to so many people already today. But uh, Father, truly bring us joy in this moment as we're looking into your word, as uh, we're starting this new series. Uh, We just pray that you'd have your way in this message. And as we're looking forward to Easter, uh, we're excited. Bring to mind a person that we should be praying for now, that we should invite to come and join us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wanted something just because someone else had it? You don't have to admit it. Oh, Pierre, admit it. Okay, okay. I'm sure some of us are in there. Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, it was our goddaughter's birthday, and she turned five, and her little sister was going to come with us out to her favorite restaurant. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but even just last night, my wife and I were ordering, and it's like, well, I don't want to order the exact same thing as someone else, right? Even if it's good, you're like, I want to get something different, and then I'll try some of yours. But in this case, the younger sister, even though she doesn't like grilled cheese at all, she felt that fear of missing out, you know what I mean? And so she, she decides to get uh, grilled cheese, and I was trying to give her some, she was sitting right beside me, and I cut a little piece off. The look on her face when I put some in her mouth it, it was awful, she just, but she, she couldn't stand missing out on what everyone else was having. But sorry if I'm the odd one out here, but see, I love grilled, and I love cheese, but I don't love grilled cheese. Am I the only one? I don't know, there's just something about it that's not for me, I don't experience that FOMO. But in case you didn't know, and I've kind of said it, but FOMO means fear of missing out, I wouldn't want you to miss out, I wouldn't want you to have FOMO over FOMO. Our dog has FOMO. Uh, basically, whenever we have a snack or meal of any kind, he's right there. He does not want to miss out. Uh, if we were ever to hug, uh, he wants to be right in the middle, middle of that. Basically, anytime I get up off the couch, he's wondering uh, what he'd be missing out on if he didn't tag along. And uh, well, you know, I've, I've personally had FOMO before. A couple summers ago, uh, months before my birthday, my wife asked me, would I like an Apple Watch? You can see I'm wearing one now. Yes, I do. But at the time, I didn't want to want it. Do you know, do you know what I mean? You're like, everyone else is doing it, and I don't want to do that. Uh, but in, in this case, here's what went down. She asked me if I would like it, and I was like, well, I'll have to research it. And boy, is she mad that I've researched it, because I found out the exact one I wanted. And that summer, we got to go over onto Grand Manan and lead worship at the Lighthouse, and we were with Tim and Gala, and Tim was wearing an Apple Watch, and he's like, you don't have one? I'm pretty sure there was, there was an edge to that, like, how do you not have one? But here's the real thing. When Gala Guptal tells you to do something, you do it, Right? She told me, she's like, John, you need to do this. And I'm like, there, there you have it, Kelsey. Okay, so, so now, you know, I used to be an athlete, and now my watch congratulates me for standing up. So <laughs> anyway, this could be a great icebreaker for a small group this week. Share a time when you experienced FOMO. You know Israel had FOMO? Israel wanted a king like the other nations. They actually begged for a king. And check out this brief bit of history the Apostle Paul shares in Acts 13. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then, with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan, and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. And after that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. 
Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is, promised, who is God's promised Savior to Israel. So in case you missed it, we're in week one of this new series called Crowns, and you can see kind of the crown in the logo. You can see it on the invitation from the, the crown of thorns over to the golden crown here. It's this five-week series, and Pastor Tim will be preaching right in the middle for Easter weekend on April 16 and 17, and we're going from King David today you know, to Jesus, son of David, next week and beyond, and then from Jesus wearing a crown of thorns to the imagery of us laying down our crowns at the feet of Jesus in Revelation. Why? Because we believe there is only one worthy of a crown, Jesus. We were just singing and praising him. He's king over all. He's worthy of it all. So today we're looking at King David, a man after God's own heart. But right before David, there was Saul. First, just a little bit more backstory. In Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the Bible, Moses says that the people will want a king like the other nations, but this king should be chosen by God among the people of Israel. So they go from leaders like Moses and Joshua to then judges, and technically, there's actually one king in there whom the, the people appointed, and that didn't end well. But Samuel, also a prophet, ends up becoming kind of the final judge, not to mention probably the best one they ever had. But the people had FOMO. Even though Samuel was pretty great, his sons were not. So the people used this as an opportunity to make their case for a king, just like the other nations. And the problem was that essentially by doing this, they're rejecting God as their one true king. And despite warnings, the people still wanted a king of their own, so God gave them Saul. So Saul became Israel's first king. Physically, for those of you who don't know, he was head and shoulders, like in height, he was head and shoulders above pretty much everyone else. But spiritually, he was shallow. So a huge difference there. And to make matters worse, he directly disobeyed the Lord's command, not to mention Samuel's. And so we're going to pick up after this happens in 1 Samuel 13. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. And this is where we first hear that phrase, after his own heart. It's David that he's talking about, a man after his own heart. The Lord had David in mind, and a few chapters later, we're going to see how he sent Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. But this right here could be the biggest question for you to consider all week. What would it take to be considered a person after God's own heart? What would it take to be considered a person after God's own heart? Some of you have heard little bits and pieces of my story, my testimony before, but it was just before going into the 12th grade that I received Jesus. 
I believed, I definitely had the notion that God existed before, but I had never really placed my trust in him until the summer of 1999. And so as you can imagine, um, I, all of a sudden it, it was though um, my eyes had 20-20 vision. I, I could see everything so much more clearly. And when I was reading the word, there were so many things. I'd, I'd heard about David and Goliath, but I didn't know any backstory. I didn't know the significance um, of what God was doing in the story. But all of a sudden, I'm just reading all these things. When I get into the 12th grade, my English class, uh, we had to do a book report. And I got approval from my teacher at FHS to do it on this book about David and his life, which had tons of biblical um, kind of references and things in it. And she's like, yeah, no problem. I was like, well, but can I also do my presentation on it? Because I had to get up and public speak for, you know, 15 minutes to my peers. And she's like, go for it. And so I get up there and I had the book and, and the guy in the front row was just like, is that the Bible? Like, he was just like, what is this? It was so incredible. But that was kind of my first mini sermon. So... <laughs> It was, it was kind of cool. I mean, I was kind of fresh. I didn't know very much, but I knew what I was reading in that book, and God was challenging me. But I, I know I look kind of young to be a senior pastor, but listen, I've been preaching since I was a senior in high school, so <laughs> check it out. I snuck in there just in 99, like just barely. Like, I've been preaching since the 90s. Like, come on. But in that reading, I learned so much about David and, and why he was even the person. It was more about his character and, and, and this whole phrase, after his own heart. I was like, what is that? It was so intriguing to me, and so this next verse became pretty much my favorite verse ever since I read it that year. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, uh, Samuel has been sent by the Lord to the house of Jesse. He's there, and he's going to appoint a king, but he goes to the oldest son, and this is what we read. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, as a 16 turning 17-year-old, you can imagine how much of a difference hearing that made for my early walk with Christ. I hope it is the same encouragement for you today that people look at the outward, but God looks at the heart. He knows you more than anyone else could the first part of that verse again, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I rejected him. Technically, he was speaking about David's oldest brother, but there's another layer to it. Outwardly, we were mentioning how Saul was head and shoulders above others. But remember, don't judge by his appearance or height. People judge by the outward appearance. But cowardly, something that I didn't include is that one time Saul actually hid behind a bunch of equipment while everyone was looking for him. He was, he was really cowardly. Inwardly, David was a man after God's own heart, and the Lord made this known to others and to us. And the Lord looks at the heart, so he would know. And then courageously, when we read something like the story between David and Goliath, well, even before that, he was defending his sheep or his father's sheep in the fields. Um, and so there, there's just something about him, you know, if we took the time to learn the difference between Saul and David, the takeaway would probably be this, that you can't microwave character. You need to put it in a slow cooker. We said it a couple weeks ago, long obedience in the same direction. That's how Eugene puts it. Well, John Mark Comer says it this way, God is more concerned with your long-term character than your short-term happiness. He's more concerned with your long-term character than your short-term happiness. Character. Character makes all the difference between Saul and David. And here's what I think. 
Character is the glue between who you are and what you do. Character is the glue between who you are and what you do. If you think about that, I talked a few weeks ago about how there's this challenge of I'm a Christian and I'm also a pastor. Or you can think of it in so many ways. As a church, we believe one thing, but do we actually live it out? We say we love our city. Are we doing things like serving at the community kitchen, like potentially creating homes for people? Are, are we going to do that? And so the glue in between is really the character. That's the challenge for us individually and together as a group today. So we're learning David was a man after God's own heart, but David was far from perfect. Sure, he had his successes, but he also had his fair share of failure. Can you guess why? David had FOMO. He did. He had the fear of missing out. And the story of David and Bathsheba, which could require disclaimers, but we're, we're going to focus a little bit more on David's side of this, not to make light of Bathsheba's side of it, but as a king, he should have been having FOMO regarding not going with his men to battle. It was that time. That's what he ought to do. But instead, David stays back. He sees this woman taking a bath on her roof. And 2 Samuel 11.3 tells us he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, now, some of you might comedically be thinking, her name is Bathsheba? Just one? Your dentist's name is Crentist? Huh, sounds a lot like dentist. Maybe that's why he became a dentist. Anyway, I don't know if you think her name was actually Sheba and then maybe the nickname caught on, but, but David should have been out with his men is kind of the point. He sees this woman bathing on a roof. He knows she's a married woman. It's confirmed. Her husband's away where David should be. And David commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, and to top it all off, David had her husband, Uriah, killed. And in the next chapter, we're going to read this together where Nathan goes to confront David about the whole scene. And in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1, it said, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like his own baby daughter. Some of you are thinking of your pet right now. But one day, a guest arrived at the home of a rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And he actually said a lot more. And then, he, and then Nathan is actually sharing what the Lord is saying. And so jumping down to verse 12, the Lord is saying, You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you in sight of all Israel. And there are consequences here, but this is, this is kind of great what, what David says as, as acknowledgement and confession back to Nathan. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
sin, what is it? I, I've heard so many people ask, and I think sometimes there are multiple answers, and that makes it even trickier to understand. Well, it could be willing or on purpose. It could also be unwilling or by accident. Pastor John used to say it could be anything in thought or deed. It could also be missing the mark. You know, think about archers who they're, they're pulling back and they're, they're aiming for a target. Well, in this case, it could be missing the mark or missing the standard even when you try your best. So not intending wrong, but actually intending good. And here's the thing. The standard isn't comparison to someone else and their sin. The standard by which we measure this is by Jesus. He's the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He's perfect and we need him. And without him, we could never reach God's standard. So some think like, well, I don't really do that much wrong. Yeah, but you can't do that much right without him. This is not, this is kind of the whole story of David and Bathsheba is why we don't say, what would David do, right? <coughs> That's why the bracelets, what would Jesus do? Unless it's Monday Eats with the staff, right? You know what we do? We, we ask, we wonder, should we go back for seconds? Well, what would Dave Rowe do? <laughs> Probably once a week we ask, what would Dave do right now? He would go back, <laughs> you know he would. But in light of the high standard of Christ, consider what he has done for us. I love how Tim Keller puts it. And we just were singing about this. Jesus Christ exchanged places with you. He came to live with you. He came to, to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died so you could be reconciled to God, forgiven and remade. And this is our reminder today. Your story doesn't define you. His does. Instead of being after our own heart's sinful desire, desire not only the things of God, but desire God himself. We should be after his heart. We're learning a great lesson from the life of David. No matter how bad he messed up, and he messed up, and there were consequences. No matter how bad he messed up, he was quick to recognize his sin deal with it, and move forward. And this is where we get at Psalm 51. If you're reading through your scripture, whether on a device or, or in your physical Bible, sometimes there, there's something uh, under a psalm that's explaining uh, how many strings the instrument should have or like what the, the choir director should do or who wrote it and different things. And in this one, it, it's concerning the time uh, that Nathan confronted David after uh, this whole incident. And so think of these as David's private words between him and the Lord after. And think about how we might be able to use this to process um, that conviction and dealing with uh, our sin between us and God. It reads, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Stop. Obviously, he sinned against way more people. But what he's trying to say is that the greatest sin was between him and the Lord. He broke something there. So against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. 
Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back the joy again, my joy again, for you have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Don't you love that? Do you hear the songs that we've been singing, many of you, for years? Create in me a clean heart, oh God. This is his prayer. Conviction. Conviction is often from the Holy Spirit and sometimes through another believer in the case of Nathan here. Why? Because God wants the best for you. And he does have a standard. But conviction is meant to move us to repentance, that turning back. And confession, we're meant to confess our sin and then be forgiven. In this story, we see Nathan calls him out and David confesses and God forgives him. That whole repent is to turn back. So imagine that this direction is towards God and imagine that David was going this way and we thought so highly of him, but then all of a sudden, he's turning this way. He's turned his back. Well, the whole repentance thing is that he needs to turn 180 back towards God. But some things have to take place, don't they? And what does this do? It leads back to joy. Here's the great thing about this story, and, and we're learning this in the weeks to come, is that God took this mess and he redeemed it. Bathsheba is in the genealogy of Jesus. God kept his promise to David. Even though David messed up royally, God royally redeemed the situation. And that's what God does as king. What would it take for us to be considered a person after God's own heart? Well, I think this is evidence. We shouldn't let our public walk with Jesus outpace our private walk with him. Character is who you are when nobody's looking. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. People, naturally, we look at the public, but God looks at the private. Do we ever have FOMO? What about for us? I would say don't fear missing out on the outwardly things. What takes place on the inside is what matters, and it matters to God. And God had this plan for us to have a king, Jesus. This is what we're learning all month. God's plan was and still is to be our king. God used to be king. He still is, but he used to be too. And David was promised a lasting kingdom through his descendant, the Messiah. He would take his throne. It would be his kingdom. His rule would be eternal. It's Jesus who's the king. Fun fact, do you know where David was anointed king? Bethlehem. Do you know who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus, the son of David. The descendant promised to David. Jesus was king from birth. Jesus is king of all. Jesus is worthy of all. Is Jesus king of your heart? I want you to ask yourself this question even now. What would it take for me to be considered a person after God's own heart? The worship team is about to lead us, and in a few moments we'll take part in the Lord's Supper together. But here's what I really want you to know today is that God is after your heart, so go after his. We need a new heart, though. That's our part, but then there's God's part. When we ask, like David, create in me a clean heart, oh God, let that be our prayer. I love what's 
spoken of in Ezekiel 36, 26. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. To paraphrase from the message, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that's God-willed, not self-willed. So after the worship team leads us, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. But what we need to realize is that before he, being Jesus, sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father, our king willingly wore a crown of thorns. So let's remember his sacrifice as we sing and participate in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Father, I thank you so much for your word for this that we're learning today from from scripture and the example here. God, there's such a high standard, but we pray that you would be changing our heart even now. Let that be our prayer. For those of us that need to confess, would we do that openly? Would we acknowledge what it is we've done? Would your Holy Spirit be working in us even now, helping us to turn back to you? Would we see and experience how we can be forgiven because of what you've already done? Help us to turn back to you. Give us that new heart that's God-willed, not self-willed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.